Welcome to Marty's Music Kitchen, the fun music and food podcast where anything can happen. We're cooking today with Mark Bitterman, James Beard award-winning food writer, chef, foodie, world traveler, business owner, and Instagram king, or Instagram surf in his own estimation. He is the founder of Bitterman Salt Company with handmade salts that unite flavor, sustainability, and social responsibility. He's also the owner of the specialty store, The Meadow, with locations in Portland, New York City, and coming this spring in Tokyo. Now on the doorstep of its 13th year in business, this place is internationally known as the specialty boutique shop for finishing salts, cocktail bitters, and of course, my favorite food group, chocolate. I meet the salt maker and he's this, this guy who's got this like sandy blonde hair and these like pale blue sun bleached eyes and he's looking out over the horizon and he's talking about how he makes salt with his hands and the sea and the sun. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, I'm just like in love. Who are you? And he tells the story of the Salt Works, which was founded in the 1300s by monks who invented this super sophisticated hydrological process. That Salt Works was built on the foundation of a Roman era Salt Works that started 800 years before that. And I'm like, oh my God. And he's like, no, but that wasn't all. That Salt Works was built on the foundation of Celtic Salt Works that go back to Neolithic times. On the menu today is a badass family recipe for Caesar salad and a steak which I'm told is all about the salt, and a martini, which Mark suggests is the hardest drink in the world to make. Since Mark's cookbooks have won awards from places like the James Beard Foundation, and he shared salt and bitters at the Smithsonian and the Cordon Bleu, and he has been recognized as a local food hero by Cooking Light and a taste maker in food and wine, I'm thinking this will be an amazing food experience. What is this magic melody he sings about salt? And why is he one of the most in-demand interviews for places like the New York Times, the Splendid Table, and All Things Considered? And of course, what is the mysterious music connection? Stay tuned and let's find out. Hi Mark, welcome to the show. Welcome to my house. <laughs> Nice well, to have you. This is a gorgeous house. We're in um, Northeast Portland. Um, how old is the house? Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 105-ish. I think it was a boarding house. And there's rumors that it was a brothel. But I think that's probably just trying to add a little bit a of color. A brothel. Wow. Yeah, I know. yeah, that's a colorful history. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's, it has a seedy feel to it, which we, we like. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a fun interview. I can tell already. So, all right. So what's on the menu today? Well, I think before we even talk about menu, we need to have a drink in our hands. Oh, uh, well, okay. I'm with you there. What, what have you got cooking? What's, what's, uh... We're going to cook ourselves up a martini. Okay. And I did read what you sent me. You said this is the hardest drink to make. Martinis, there's just nowhere to hide. You've got um, really two, maximum three ingredients, unless you count garnishes and maybe four. But it's really, really, really simple, uh-huh. really, really classic. Um, the ingredients, despite what you might have heard, are really only two options, vermouth and gin. Uh-huh. There's no such thing as a martini with vodka, unless you call it a vodka martini. Or uh-huh. you could use apple schnapps and call it an apple teeny, but it's not a martini. So martini is just gin and vermouth, and we'll kind of put one together, and I'll show you the secret even the bartenders don't know what it is. Oh my that makes gosh, a great this bartender. is like the coolest food tip ever. All it's right. a good one. I can't wait. Let's it's dive overlooked. In. All right. So, what we're going to do, we have our nice little beaker. So, I'll make it for two because that's a nice way to do it. I'm okay. just going to look for my 
concoctions. So a kind of like a five to one ratio of vermouth to gin. Okay. That's a nice balance. Okay. Traditional balance. You could be drier. You could be wetter. The vermouth makes it wet. Okay. So what we're going to use here is that imbue vermouth, which is locally made. Oh, I love it. Delicious stuff. Okay. And why not go local when you can? I agree with you on that. And nothing else because it makes it a bit more unpredictable and a bit more unique to where we're sitting here today. So I put a little bit of that vermouth in there and really the ratios are not the secret part. So five to one gin to vermouth. Uh -huh. So that's one vermouth, five gin. What we'll do is also get ourselves ready because the most beautiful thing, let's say the most wonderful part of your entire day is that first sip of a martini. So you want that baby cold, crisp, frosty, and delicious. So I get mm -hmm. everything else ready first. I've okay. got, do you like olives? I love olives. And you get two. I adore, I'm a two olive girl, that's for sure. Um, and and so these are going to be stuffed with pimentos and garlic, which is kind of overkill, but you know, we're not, this is like the Bloody Mary of, of martinis. Okay. And then uh, what brand are we using? Oh, this is just something that fell off a truck in front of my front yard. Tassos, it's <laughs> good though. Just happened to fall into your off front yard. Off the olive truck. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I'm going to go grab a little bit of ice. Okay. Or maybe as the case would have it, a lot of ice, which okay. brings me to one of our tips. So I filled the beaker with ice, not yep. a little bit of ice, a lot of ice. Uh -huh. And I'm using a beaker uh, for a couple reasons. One is because it's pretty and looks cool. Okay. Um, the other is because there's a lot of glass, has a lot of thermal mass. So it helps to take some of the energy out of the cold. Oh, God, I love science. And therefore helps to dilute your martini. Despite whatever you hear a million times, there's a million reasons why you could split hairs and talk about whether you want a shaken martini or mm -hmm. a stirred martini. But there's right. only one really, really objectively impossible to refute reason why. Okay. And that is when you shake a martini, you're just jamming it in all into a million different pieces. You're splintering ice everywhere. The ice cold metal is transmitting the cold right into your hands and uh -huh. you have no control over how fast it's, it's uh, melting and diluting. Ah. No control at all. You just hope to God you got it right. Right. Shake, 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 shake. You either way over diluted it or way under diluted it, but the chances of getting it on the dime uh -huh. are slim. So this is your super secret. Super secret is it. dilution is what makes a great martini. Mm. Now, when you see a bartender tasting, if they're tasting for flavor, they're crazy. They should have just measured. You don't. Have, it never changes. <laughs> just Measure every math. single time. Math. math. It will never taste different. But what you're really <laughs> tasting for, if you know what you're doing when you're a bartender, is you're tasting for dilution. Uh -huh. Did I get it quite right? Because that's tricky. Bar ice, so frozen ice takes longer to stir than bar ice because frozen mm -hmm. ice is actually colder. Mm -hmm. Bar ice is actually sheathed in water, about 20%. So you use bar ice, you stir for a, just a second. You use frozen ice, you stir for a few seconds. That's Amazing. I love science. The so only this thing is, better than science is science you can drink. This is picture is going to be here with I love science. It's going to be great. So now you're pulling out frozen glasses. Frozen glasses. You're going to get the weird antique funky glass. Okay, I'll take it. I think it's just it. too cool for school. And I'm going to pour a little surplus in our surplus glass in case there's any stray sippers that need a sip. They get an, also an ultra cool antique glass. Is that what you said? Yeah, this is. This is Did you find it in the house? It was found in the whorehouse, yeah. Yeah, great. In the brothel. <laughs> brothel. It's a brothel glass. Oh, look at that. You just like measured it perfectly. I so. know. It's like that surface tension on the mm -hmm. edge. That's like. That's perfect. The, the, um, That's just me the showing has, off. You put the olives in and the liquid came exactly to the top. Like, I'm going to have to lean down to the counter to That's, drink it. There's no shame in that whatsoever. Really? Okay. Yes, well. So what we'll do is raise our glasses. All right, well, I'm gonna to try to do this without spilling it. Or you cannot raise your glass, just lower your lips. 
we really should have a toast though, don't you think? Mm -hmm. To um, salt, chocolate, and um, cocktail bitters. I love it. The spice of life, all three. The spices the of spice life. The spice and the sweet and <laughs> yeah, there you go. The sweet, salty, spicy, chocolatiness of life. Oh, wow. Mark, you make an amazing martini. That is Delish, really right? good. That is, that's the best martini I've ever had. Aw, thank no, you. No, 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 I'm not kidding. That is, that's, you could make a whole new business, a whole new sideline out of just making martinis. I, I swear it's, I, I think there's something so beautiful and something that simple and delicious that it would be like, it would be the coolest idea. Yeah, wouldn't it? Have you ever done a recipe book about um, cocktails? Yeah, absolutely. Have a, a, a whole book on cocktails and bitters and Amari. Mm -hmm. So it's actually kind of a hysterical book. It was fun and fattening to write. Oh, really? Because of well, the alcohol? No. Interestingly enough, no. What was fattening about it was the tasting. So the book is called uh, Bitterman's Field Guide to Bitters and Amari. Amari uh -huh. are the same thing as bitters, except they're um, drinkable by the bottle, whereas uh, bitters is drinkable, is droppable by the bottle. Ow. So the two differences, this is something you cannot, you could use as a flavoring, but you could use this in a glass with an ice cube. Ah. This little bottle here is something you use by the dropper full. And that's the strangely, strangest thing is there's no really better definition of the two than one is designed to drink, one is designed to drop in. in, in and are they essentially flavor. the same thing then? Yep. Oh, and they just come out of different traditions. This used to be, the little bottle of bitters used to be a drinkable, potable liqueur. We used to drink it as medicine. It was snake oil. It was, it, frankly, want to hear something crazy? The oldest beverage ever found on the face of the earth was uh, found in pottery shards. They did an analysis of it. They found that in these pottery shards were residues from a rice and barley brew mm -hmm. that was sweetened with honey and contained hawthorn berries. Hawthorn berries are an intensely bitter medicinal plant, botanical, that has been used in medicine since the dawn of time. Huh. So what people were doing thousands of years ago was putting the hawthorn berries in something alcoholic because the alcohol actually helps to extract. The ethanol extracts the botanical properties. Uh -huh. Extracts that out, yep. now you've got a kind of a concentrate of this hawthorn berry medicine, huh. but it tastes like hell. So you add a little bit of sugar to it in the form of honey, because it's pre-sugar, and you get the first ever Amaro. So the first thing that man ever drank as a beverage. That's first, just like that. Was just like this. Only for medicinal purposes. Strictly you know, for medicinal. That's what we're doing we, we, right we're, now, We right? can be very confident that they were right. not about having fun back then. Exactly. It was just about, yeah, it was just about, about getting pods business done. And, right. Just struggle. Exactly. And, That's really fascinating information. So Isn't that nuts? So we're just following in that tradition. Well, this is a truly delicious martini and I look forward to mm. uh, sipping it as we move through your kitchen. Just okay, what's up? Kitchen. What's and up I next? I could have put a drop of bitters in there, but I just chose not to for simplicity's sake. All right, a little well, bit of orange bitters is not bad. I'm going to have a little more sip. Oh, yeah. See if we make it through this interview. Mm-hmm. All right, what's up next? All right. So what we're going to have for dinner uh -huh. is a steak. Okay. And steak something that I almost never, steak is something I almost never eat at home. We just were not a big meat eating family. Um, love meat, but honestly, there's just really wonderful alternative ways to eat. Uh -huh. um, so we cook a lot of vegetables and um, a fair, a little bit of seafood here and there. And then just kind of judiciously put a little bit of meat in. So what kind of a cut of steak is this? So this is a ribeye. Okay. And we went with uh, steak today because I think it's really fun to talk. It's a very popular food. And it's really fun to talk about how to cook a steak properly. 
Okay. So let's talk about salt for a second. Okay. So you said to me that the steak was going to be all about the salt. Yeah. And you actually own a salt company. Yeah. And um, I want to know, like, what... What brought about this fascination with salt? Ah, see, I just realized how smart I am. I just realized another reason why I decided to do a steak. This was kind of fortuitous. Was um, the, the, the way I got into salt was through a steak. So I was living in the south of France, uh -huh. and I was living on a farm. I got a job by total, I don't know, I talked my way into this job, restoring the chateau in the south of France. And so I was building shutters and repairing hardwood floors. And, and how, how old were you? I was about 19. Huh. And so I just kind of fumbled my way in this job, and I ended up doing more and more things there. I ended up staying for about three years. And when I, while I was there, I kind of had uh, some kind of profound re revelations about the way the world worked. One of which was that uh, food is not just about calories and sustenance. It's actually about community. It's that it's food is a thing that is sourced via very complex system, agricultural, economic, cultural, political, dietary, blah, 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 blah. Food isn't just a thing. It's mm -hmm. something that is intrinsic to a very complex way of life and ecosystem and all that good stuff. So when I was living on this farm, I was doing all kinds of cool stuff that you don't normally get to do in your life. I was helping to uh, tend the garden, mm -hmm. helping to take care of the ducks, and we had sheep on the property, and we'd do all that kind of thing. Uh, we actually made foie gras and confit of duck, we would go into barns and, believe it or not, harvest pigeons and have pigeon dinners. Uh -huh. um, we would go hunting. Uh, I went out in the morning, in the misty morning dawn, and shot wild boar, and I'd, we'd get the tractor and bring it in. The whole village would come and help to butcher these gigantic wild boar. Wow. Not feral hogs like you have in America. These are Eurasian wild boar. They're monsters. They're wow. the size of pickup trucks, and they're fierce. The, that's um, pretty big. <laughs> they're big animals. So we'd uh, so all these experiences were something that I found to be like, well, this is way richer than I thought it was. And the meals that we were making were always bound up in some sort of tradition. The woman who ran the household, her name was Angèle. She was an immigrant to France under the famines of Mussolini. She came there uh, with her younger brother mm -hmm. and I think another sibling who uh -huh. passed away. Oh. And she ended up becoming the nanny to the, at the chateau and raised the kids who were the children of the owners. And she knew everything there was to know about traditional French cooking because she grew up as a poor girl in the farms. So it'd be the most remarkable thing you could ever hear. Like you'd hear like the dogs baying from over the hill and she'd say, oh, that means there's a southwestern wind and therefore it means that the morel mushrooms are going to be uh, ready to be harvested over there in the forest to the south. Wow. And you're like, how is that possible? That's... She knew. That's like the total connection in between family, community, food. That's like the cycle of life and yeah. like everything right there in that one little, one little expression. I mean, that's, wow, that's an amazing, amazing experience. It, I mean, it absolutely floored me. And it was, there was something so natural to everything that she did. Um, uh, you know, she'd make orange wine. She'd make these, uh, she had this famous dish, which was uh, called pentad, which I think is guinea fowl. Um, uh -huh. It's a wild hen, right? And she would make this thing, and she—it was she was known. I mean, she was actually, honestly, throughout the region, she was known for her pantad. And she'd make this roast bird, and we'd have these huge banquets on these in this magnificent dining hall with these like windows that are all. I did the, the shutters for them, but all the windows were like 15 feet tall, and the ceilings are way up there in the sky. 
and with all the windows open and this big pantad coming out, we'd be all sitting down and the swallows would fly in through the windows and circle around the room and fly back out. And there's, you know, hydrangeas fluttering in the breeze outside the windows. You're like, this is like paradise on earth. Oh, wow. And she would serve out this pantad. And even in these circles, you would just be like, I had never had anything like this. I mean, it's just the most exquisitely beautiful, simple, delicious food. And, and you know, it sounds and, like a movie. And like, yeah, like someone, it was, it was you could have written it better. Otherworldly. Yeah. And of course, her, the, the, the recipe was like, oh, a little, little olive oil, a little salt. You're like, and, you know, where's the foie gras? Where's the this? Where's the that? It's like, no, right. no, she doesn't do anything at all to this food. She just roasts it beautifully, cuts it beautifully puts it on a table with a bunch of root vegetables or something, and it's just like the best thing you've ever eaten. Wow. So I got to learn about food that way. Huh. And it was in that context that I was uh, taking a little trip one day, riding around my motorcycle up in the north of France. Uh-huh. I stopped at a truck stop. And I mean, I've told the story a lot, so, uh, it, it, but it's a true story of how I discovered salt. I wrote about it in my, in my first book. Is, what um, is your first book? Uh, called Salted, A Manifesto on the World's Most Essential Mineral with Recipes. Okay. And um, in, in, in this moment, I, cause I usually st- just traveling very simply and with no money. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I decided to stop at this truck stop and, and get a more substantial bite to eat. So I ordered a steak and that was a real treat. And so I ordered the steak, I take a few bites and I realized that about a minute later, I'm having an out-of-body experience. I'm staring down at this guy in a motorcycle jacket eating a steak. And I'm like, this is very weird that I'm not in my own body right now. What was in that salt? Yeah, what the (laughs) hell? What's going on? So I asked this waiter, I'm like, so dude, like what's going on with the steak? And he like kind of shrugs and walks away. I'm like, dude, help me out. You know, what's, how'd you make the steak? And what is the steak? And he's like, "Uh uh-huh, it is a cow. (laughs) I'm like, you're not helping me. Sarcasm was not helping. So I press it and he goes, look, it's just a grilled steak uh, and it's got salt on it. And I kind of look at it more carefully. I'm like, oh, what, what do you mean? And I look, and there's these little wells of moisture with these opalescent silvery crystals of salt sitting in the steak. And I'm like, that's cool. So I take a bite, and I realize there's this crazy oceanic, like mineral zing of salt. There's a spark of something that's really, really clean and bright and exotic uh-huh. and complex that's just bouncing, ricocheting off all the flavors of this fatty, rich, juicy steak. And so I take it, and every single bite I take, it's kind of ricocheting in a different direction. So I'm like, this is really a dynamic experience. It's what, it's not salty steak. That's not what I ate. I had this crazy, gorgeous, beautiful, primitive ingredient and this steak together in mm-hmm. a dance, uh-huh. in a song. Uh-huh. There you go. There's your music tie-in. Well, okay, maybe. <laughs> what is that salt and steak song? You got to find it. So, um, so that was what kind of blew my mind. I jumped on my, I found out who the salt maker was. Of course, they knew him. I jumped on my bike, I race out to the coast, and I meet the salt maker. And uh-huh. he's this guy who's got this like sandy blonde hair and these like pale blue sun bleached eyes. And he's looking out over the horizon. He's talking about how he makes salt with his hands and the sea and the sun. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, I'm just like in love. Who are you? Yeah. And, uh, and here you are, this young, almost 20, and this yeah. is like, this is it. I mean, you've like you're discovering, discovering food and magic and yep. all of those flavors and the richness of life in the salt. It right? was all happening. He tells the story of the salt works, which was founded in the 1300s yeah. by monks who uh-huh. invented this super sophisticated hydrological process where you take high tides, fortnightly tides, and then feed a 
fill up a big basin and then the tide goes down, then you trickle that high, now that water above sea level, trickle that down through a salt farm, all gravity fed and sun, and uh -huh. you get salt at the end of it. It's like insanely masterful. I'm like, this is beautiful. He's like, wait, 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 that's not all. That salt works was built on the foundation of a Roman era salt works that started 800 years before that. And I'm like, uh. oh my God. And he's like, no, but that wasn't all. That salt works was built on the foundation of Celtic salt works that go back to Neolithic times. Wow. So I'm sitting here thinking, I was eating a steak and I have a steak and through this crystal of salt, I saw that kind of history. Something that. that goes back to, it dwarfed us. It was like looking at the stars and seeing life on stars. You're like So living in a house yeah. that's a hundred years old is kind of nothing. It's like a drop in the bucket compared to some of the salt that we have access to that it's, goes yeah. back eons, right? It's, I, I, yeah, exactly right. It's like history is, is really deep and it's really beautiful and we all belong to it in yeah. ways that we don't really fully understand. Well, it's of the earth. It's all of the earth. You know, it's of the, the earth and the sea. Yeah. So that was my, that was my steak story and that, that converted me. Um, that was the thing that kind of made me, made me look at something that we all thought of so, such a simple thing. Such a non-thing. I mean, who, who cares? Salt. Salt's nothing. Salt. It's just yeah. this Pass the dirty salt. white cheap stuff you yeah. buy in a supermarket. Right. That's all it is. And it's like, oh, actually, that's not what salt is at all. It's mm. something way, way deeper. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of thrilled me now throughout my life. That was one of the things that maybe altered my life um, was that in, in these details, in these, like, you take a still moment and you look seriously at something and the world opens up. It's in all the busyness and all the action and all the mash and all the material and all the garbage and all the rush and all the needs. You don't see anything. You don't get to anything. It's just a flimsy layer of satisfaction, of like shallow satisfaction. You take something really simple, if you, which is hard to do. I'm not saying this is easy. It's not easy for me. But you take something really simple and you uh -huh. slow way down yeah. and look at that and you find incredibly complexity and beauty and history yeah. and, and a connection. Yeah, I have a friend who always says he likes to take things slow because he wants to savor, right? And I'm I'm like a true extrovert, and sometimes it's hard for me to slow things down enough to really experience it. But, you know, I do manage to do that every once in a while. Well, something, uh, a terrible confession is, so one of the things, I used to write letters. I was I was trained to write letters by my mom. It was, I was raised by wolves, everybody said. It was given no structure at all in my life. We really? had a rope swing in except our house. For the, and... Except for the letter writing? Somehow. Except for the letter writing. <laughs> she, every day I wrote a letter. Every day. My grandma, my uncle, my aunt, my grandpa, my whoever. Yeah. I wrote a letter every day. And that was a, a kind of an exceptional process in discipline of understanding the present. Anyway, so Well, you know, my grandmother used to write me letters all the time. Mm -hmm. And she would, on special occasions, she would enclose a um, silver dollar in it. She'd tape it oh. in the envelope and send it. And it always had a stick of juicy fruit gum. Grandmas you know, are beautiful. Yeah, she would tape it in there and then write me a letter. <laughs> See, that's what made me, I forgot why I even brought it up, the letters, but I got a letter from my mom yesterday. Ah. Uh, I haven't opened it yet. Oh. I'm just, I'm not going to open it yet. I need a minute. I have just got back gonna, from Japan. I'm feeling completely, you know, I, I, I slept, I think, if I'm lucky, two hours last night. Uh-huh. It's like, I want to enjoy my mom's letter. Right. So it's sitting in my, in my computer bag waiting for me to have a minute to sit down someplace with a cup Aww. of coffee and read my mom's letter. Aww. It's like the dearest thing Don't in the world. Don't worry, mom. He's going to read it. I'm actually, <laughs> my New Year's resolution is to start writing letters. I'm going to, um, I'm away from home. I miss my girlfriend when I'm away from home. I want to write her like a freaking letter. Yeah. I'm like, here's my letter. Yeah. I want to sign it. Or to my kids, they're away in college and I miss them. And my yeah. mom who lives down south, it's like, or people, frankly, 
there's so many people in our lives that we even see here in Portland, but like yeah. how often do you get to truly like just take a minute and say, God, I really, not even corny, it sounds corny, but like, I'm really happy I get to know you. Yeah. Well, actually... And people actually tolerate that kind of When I take shit. the time to do something, <laughs> kind of a meditation for me is I make cards. It's a it's a slowing down. It's a, a diving deeper. Agree. You know what I mean? I completely agree. Yeah, I, I, so. I, I think that's spot on. And honestly, that's for me, I have a lot of ways of expressing myself. I'm really, really lucky how many wonderful ways I get to you know explore things that interest me. But day in, day out, Nothing gives me greater pleasure than just throwing down some food with people that I love. It's ceaselessly satisfying. Yeah, that's how I grew up. We'd always have these big yeah. family gatherings. And in my mom's side of the family, we'd always sing at the table. And oh, it's beautiful. Um, I'm not I'm not overly religious myself, but um, they always sang blessings and, mm. and things like that before the mm. dinner. And I'm not sure it held much meaning other than the music. Um, but there's still we still sing yeah. those two kind of traditional hymns. That's so awesome. Um, it's just in harmony. If there's even just three of us together, we do it. So, so I'm going to tell fun. you, I'm jealous because I've always felt that music is something incredible. And uh -huh. I felt strangely like I'm always clawing at the surface of music. Like mm -hmm. I, I try to play bass, which is I think the easiest instrument is the one. I played violin when I was little. Well, I'm not going to say it's easy. Do you play electric bass or upright? I tried to play electric bass. Okay, that's in a, easier. In a cabin alone in Vermont for a winter. Okay. And I went crazy doing that, actually. I yeah. became like Jack Nicholson writing okay. All I'm Work and No Play makes Jack a dull boy. Say, guess what? what? It's easier when you have someone helping you. <laughs> I was too alone. It was pre-internet. This was terrible. Yeah, Jack it Nicholson. Misery. I can imagine. Mark Nicholson. Mark Nicholson. But it was, so it was terrible. But Hi, honey. I didn't grow up with music that way at all. Um, we uh, grew up in an incredibly uh, uh, argumentative, in a wonderful way. Like we'd have huge, heady, head, like just face-off arguments every single night, right. big discussions over dinner, whether it was about politics or art or life or books or who did what. Right. There, there were big, loud fights every single night at the dinner table, which was my joy. I loved it. Mm. But so we never speaking, sang, so ever. speaking of dinner table, why don't we continue our talk as we're cooking? Yeah. Um, so, tell me about the steak. Got it. So what we got going on here is we have two nice sized steaks, which yep. is enough to feed probably six people, I think. I brought this up really one of the main reasons is because I think it's a, it's a very common food. It's very commonly misdone. Uh -huh. And there are big, obviously huge debates. I, I will not say there is a right way and a wrong way. There uh -huh. are, there's, it's just too deep of a field. There are too many expert steak makers in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd like to kind of say that I take a play out of a few people's playbooks. One example is if you go, there's a, a local chef in town, um, very brilliant, talented woman named Naomi Pomeroy who has a restaurant called Beast. Okay. Um, she's an awesome gal. She's an awesome chef, amazing entrepreneur, uh, knows a shit ton about food. And I've watched her season meat and she buys salt from us, which is kind of wonderful. It's like, she doesn't have to, she's got a million things open to her, but she's chosen to do that over the past many I, years. I have a feeling that your salt is probably some of the best that we can get, not, not just in Portland, but you know, and not even just regionally, but across the country. So I'm going to say that that's a, a huge compliment to you that she does that. I certainly am an honored. I'm yeah. definitely honored. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, my take on salt is that I'm not invested in any particular salt maker. To me, every single salt, if you think about it, salt is the most universal ingredient. It's the one ingredient that every culture, every place in the world has made since the dawn of time. Really? It's the only ingredient. Really? Every, every culture makes salt? that can make salt does everywhere <laughs> in the world since the dawn of time. I did not know that. Nothing else. I need to read your book. It's yeah, You do, <laughs> definitely. It's the singular ingredient in that regards. And so what's so crazy about that is every single salt 
is a unique reflection of the local ecology, the uh -huh. local economy, the local culinary traditions,、uh -huh. the local everything. <laughs> so I find that every single salt has its own really special story to tell, and there is sure as hell is not the best salt. That's、mm -hmm. that's absurd.、Mm -hmm. Like the best person, the best country, the best. There's no such thing. There's, there's just there's unique flavors for every person、yeah. and every salt. And and all and the and the very diversity of it alone. Is justification for itself. Who the hell would want one salt, meaning one tradition, meaning one culture, meaning one economic system,、uh -huh. meaning one natural environment? It would、right. be awful.、It's、right, it would be horrible. We、yeah. need the richness. No, it'd be a Again, shopping mall. Again, it's back to that richness of life, yeah. right? Yeah. So we and, go past、yeah. the shopping mall and we go into the full bazaar of everything that's available. So I think that what's the, it's not that we have the best salt. It's that we. Explore are open to every salt we can find, okay, and、so、we love what, to share those stories. What salt did you choose? So to we put started here. We're going to do a two-part salting for the steak, and、okay. that's my trick. All right. So I mentioned Naomi, Naomi Pomeroy from Beast、right. for a reason. It's because、right. I've watched her salt a steak, and what she does is what most chefs do, but she does it very well. Okay. She takes a huge handful of salt,、uh -huh. and she slathers that steak with salt one to three hours before it's time to serve it. Okay. And, and you've done that. Almost. Almost. Yeah. Okay. Almost.、Uh -huh. So that's a wonderful technique, and that develops a ton of flavors. The salt goes in there; it breaks down the proteins in the in the、uh, surface of the steak. Kind of like a tenderizer.、Them. Yeah, tenderizes them, makes them softer. Also, converts proteins are very very long molecules.、Uh -huh. They're not very flavor available. So you break them up into amino acids that are flavor available. You're actually making flavor. That makes、You're、complete sense. You're building flavor. That makes complete sense. And of course, it draws some moisture out, and that's that proteinaceous, rich moisture. So you、mm. kind of dehydrate the the interior just below the surface, and you get that nice proteiny moisture on the surface. Right. So you do that ahead of time. But where many chefs tend to go is they just salt the bejesus out of that steak, and that's that. Done. Steak is salted. Huh. I find that that loses something beautiful because what happens when you're doing that? The salt is lost. You've forgotten about the salt. It's just you've got salty steak, which is cool. But well, now, where's that story? Where's that discovery of what、where's、the, the salt crystal can do?、Right. The personality. You've got a two-ingredient dish. Uh huh. Where's that second ingredient? It's lost. Yep. So what I do, I pull that back by three quarters. I do about a quarter to a third of the salt of what a professional chef, what a badass chef like Naomi would do. Uh huh. I sprinkle it, rub it around, flip it over, rub it around, sprinkle it, rub it around, let it sit there for an hour or two. And that's that. So now I have a, salt, a steak that has the surface proteins treated.、Mm -hmm. All that flavor is being developed. Yep. I've done everything I needed to from a chemical standpoint, but I have not fully seasoned the meat yet. Okay. So did you leave it on the counter after you'd salted it? Oh yeah, it? always. There's no point. Always. Okay.、Uh, you know, people overrate refrigeration. Tomorrow this is going to be good. Frankly, probably two or three days later, probably、really? okay. Raw meat is good, and all the stuff that happens in the very, very earliest moments of decomposition、mm -hmm. are pretty good. I mean, if you had this thing hanging out dry, so water wasn't collecting on it, they're going to be good the next couple of days.、Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to cook the steak up and,、um, and then put a nice, delicious coarse salt on it, like the salt that I discovered when I first had、uh, steak、it. in France. I love it. I love it. Is that fun? Did you get it in France? Of course. All right. We're not well, messing around here. We're cooking it. You can tell me. I mean, I want to know. I mean, where do you do you source your salt from all over the world?、Um, yeah. Where's your favorite place to source your salt? 
you know, I have all these questions. I want to know. So I want to know about the salt. We're going to do a two-part part salting on the steak. So the first part we did was the fine salt, put it on there earlier. Right. And that is a salt from Guatemala. That's, and that's one that we sell in our shop as kind of our everyday house salt. And the shop you're talking about is called The Meadow. It's called The Meadow. We have and one in Mississippi Avenue, one on Northwest 23rd. And soon to be in Tokyo. In Tokyo. Actually, um, let's see. Ready? Nihongo chato hanashimasu. Whoa, very nice. I used to work with someone who's Japanese and I had her teach me several phrases um, because I've always wanted to go there and sing or, you know, now I'm thinking eventually I want to expand the podcast where I can travel internationally and interview people of different cultures and like um, and different musical interests. Different states oh my God. and New Orleans. And, and I can't wait to do that. And Japan is on my target list to go. So I've learned a little bit of Japanese to do that. So, um, it looks like you're prepping the pan to cook the steak. I am. I, I actually had um, uh, my old beautiful grandma's cast iron skillet, but I had to give it a quick clean. So, we're gonna, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to make a, a little Caesar salad. Mm -hmm. We'll have that prepped and then we'll throw the steak on. Okay, great. I, w I was going to point out the salt-centric side of this thing was that you always clean a cast iron skillet with salt. Do you? Usually the best way to do it is you have a warm skillet. This is a fantastic pro tip. After you've cooked, when your skillet's still warm, pour a little bit of salt in there. Usually there's all those oils and grease. Any kind of salt? In theory, sure. Hey, you have a guitar in the corner too, right by your bitters wall. Why is this? Oh, because we have this uh, We have this wonderful guy upstairs, uh, my 19-year-old son who uh, likes to play the guitar, likes to strum a little bit. Maybe he'll come down here and serenade us for Really? Uh, for, While we're cooking out the steak? I, I think he should do that. <laughs> That's Why great. Why don't play us so a song? So somewhere there's a musical gene in your family. There, He's the one. He's, he's just an oddball. He's... He's beautifully disciplined and directed and gentle and funny. And he's just, I don't know where the hell he came from, but. Okay, as you're saying that, I'm eating the olives out of my martini. Oh my gosh. So garlic and jalapeno stuffed. The olives are like their own food group. So really the classic salad lettuce for a Caesar salad is okay. romaine. Okay. So what I do to make the dressing, this is the recipe I learned from my mama. What's the super So secret? what we got in there? Is um, in a we, jar. In a jar. So into a jar, you put two egg yolks. Uh huh. Then you squeeze uh, two to three lemons whole uh -huh. into uh -huh. that. Right. Give it a nice rigorous shake. That shake does a couple things. Of course, it breaks up the yolks, and also, if there happens to be salmonella in the universe, which is very unusual in eggs, the um, there's actually studies that show the acid in the lemons kills the salmonella. Ah. So I shake it up and leave it for a while. Science. Yeah, science is so good. I love science. I really do. And then a dollop of Dijon mustard. Oh, of course. Yes. And you can let that stand for a little bit while you prep the rest of your ingredients, while you wash and chop up your lettuce and all that good stuff. Do you shake it? Yeah, shake it. Then uh, once your lettuce is prepped, you grate some, some Parmesan cheese. Okay. I think it definitely is worth your while to get the old Parmigiano Reggiano. Okay. Um, but you can use other styles of cheeses like Pecorino's that works too. And uh, anyway, then you uh, take your dressing uh, yep. jar and then yep. I, I mince up a couple anchovies. Then I pour in the oil from the anchovy jar and add that into the dressing. So the oil too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is a good tip. Anchovy oil and a few anchovies. Minced. And the only reason I put a few in is because I'm greedy and I give everybody who's at the table some of the anchovies in the dressing and then I hoard all the rest of the anchovies left over in the jar for myself at the plate. <laughs> Are you going to eat them separately? Yes. I'll just okay. eat those right. on top okay, of my good salad. To know. Then a ton of cracked black pepper, okay. which is more than people think. Then so, I put a little bit of olive oil. Let's talk about olive oil for a second. Let's talk about it. What kind? Like virgin, regular, yeah, extra brand, virgin olive oil. flavored... I don't 
overthink the olive oil because it's buried in all that lemon and mm. a little bit of mustard and all that anchovy and all that pepper. So we don't take our, our most exquisite olive oil. Okay. And as a matter of fact, on the contrary, I use kind of mid-grade, low-grade olive oil okay. because I'm not even using that much. What I do is I put probably three or four tablespoons of olive oil. Right. But then the rest, I do equal parts pretty much. So there's that mix of the egg and the uh -huh. lemon juice and the mustard and the anchovy. Um, I kind of match that ratio. So that's about, say, half, that fills up, say, half the jar. Mm -hmm. I do another half or a little bit less in oil, uh -huh. depending on how acidic you like your dressing. Okay, if you good like to it know. more acidic, less oil, less acidic, more oil. But a couple tablespoons, three, four tablespoons of olive oil, and then the rest just regular vegetable oil. And it sounds funny, like why wouldn't you use natural olive oil? It's so much more wholesome. And, but flavor-wise, it makes kind of a heavy dressing if you use right. all, all that olive oil. Like avocado oil, wonderful in a dressing. Grapeseed oil, they're just very neutral, they're very light. So I use those instead of uh, uh, all olive oil. So that's it, you got your, uh, oh, geez, did I forget? Oh my God. I don't know, what did you Two forget? Two to three cloves of garlic. <sighs> You know, that's kind of a major ingredient. Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> My God, we would be like four months later We'd getting like, hate mail. Like, missing? I made your dressing and it's, it's just terrible. awful. Just no flavor. Uh, no, two to three. I mean, I love garlic. I'm crazy about garlic. So Me I go too. a little heavy in the kind of the three clove zone. Okay. Um, Minced. And interestingly, I'm a big believer in the old mincing of the garlic, but in a salad dressing, I, I press it. So we have all those things together. And then when you shake... <laughs> I do it in a uh, in a mason jar, and you shake the heck out of it, and it emulsifies. So it's all this creamy, silky, delicious stuff. So that's that's your dressing, and you're okay. all set. So what I'm gonna do is pour that dressing onto into your two bowls of salad. Yeah, we have kind of a mondo amount of salad tonight. That's okay. So you're gonna see this another trick is about to happen. I'm not going to pour all the dressing. There's kind of a lot of dressing there, right? Um, yeah, it's like a half of a quart, half of yeah. a jar for a huge salad. We would need a little less for this for a home salad. But um, we're feeding a lot of people. So what I'm doing is taking about three quarters of that dressing and I'm pouring it into the salad. I'm leaving about a quarter in the jar. Okay, got it. So now what I'm gonna do on the air is make my beautiful homemade crouton that I had ready for you, but that okay. we just haven't had time to do. Okay, great. So I would make my croutons by taking my nice old Ken's Artisan Bakery bread, which is just any good baguette, but I like Ken's. Okay. Um, just leftovers from being at a friend's house. They threw a baguette at me as I was walking out the door. Hey, Mark. Bam. Yeah, right. Um, I just chopped it up, put it in the bag, and left it. And leave it in the cupboard for a week or a month or a year. It doesn't make any difference. Dries out. Uh, drizzle it in olive oil, maybe a little bit of garlic. Put uh -huh. it in the toaster oven and toast it. And you get fantastic homemade croutons. So we'll take those homemade croutons we've already made That's earlier great. tonight. Mm -hmm. And we'll put them in the mason jar. What? Get out! I'm just all almost, the way to the top. Almost fill her up. Oh my god, my mouth is watering. And then oh. we just coat that. That's super smart. Just turn it upside down, and we're just these, now they're croutons are hard and brittle and nasty, and they're frankly just no fun to eat. Who the hell wants to eat a crouton? It just shatters. And well, I it, actually kind of like the crunch. I like well, that. Well, these will have a little crisp, but they're not going to be like gum. They're not going to shear the flesh off okay, of your teeth. That's good. Well, if you didn't leave them alone for a year, then then maybe they wouldn't do that. <laughs> I like my ancient croutons. These are these are vintage croutons. Vintage, right? So vintage. we we put them in the dressing. And now they get a little bit of time to just kind of take on some of that okay. massive garlicky. I, I have to tell you, these are the moments in these podcasts that I just love. When I pick up that one 
thing that I'm like, oh my God, that is just genius. It makes for a delicious salad because now every crouton is a special treat. I You're love like, it. Oh my God, do yes, I get I another like crouton? Thank you. No. <laughs> like who loves me? What have I done to deserve this? Another crouton? Right. Because each crouton now has anchovy and garlic and lemon and pepper and olive oil soaked into it, just waiting to make every bite taste better. Love it. So I dress the salad. Yep. And then I I toss the salad with a whole big handful of grated yeah. Parmesan cheese. I so love now good cheese. all that all that lettuce and dressing is coated and flecked with the Parmesan cheese. So right now, I have to tell you, my mouth, I've got that tangy sensation going on. I can smell it. I can smell the lemon and the garlic and the Parmesan. And I think it's when you put the, the croutons in that I really gave, I could really smell the zest. Oh, now we've got our salads ready. So I just toss that all together. So it's all ready to go. So you can add the croutons on at the end, or you can add them in with the, uh, for, for panache, or you can add them in with the, the grated cheese. So I've just added some butter to the pan, some really nice Italian wow, butter. it browns up fast. It browns up a little bit, and then I throw the steak in there. Ah! And we're just gonna cook ourselves up a steak. Okay, what's your what's your um, burner temperature right now? High. Okay, and you had the pan heating. I did, I had the pan heating for about, probably about 10 minutes ahead of time. Okay, and um, what, what, kind of a, what kind of a doneness are you looking for on the steak today? A medium rare. It's just oh, my default. Perfect. Um, I, my mom is the bane of my existence. She likes hers well done, which I don't know how to cook. No, what? Uh, it's just oh. my dad's a New Yorker. He likes it rare. My so. guy likes his black and blue. Yeah. Which is literally Cajun spices on the outside, seared on the outside, and red in the middle. And I can't do that. Yeah. But I do like a good medium rare steak. Yeah. Well, I mean, frankly, rare is the appropriate way to eat a steak because it's just the most, you get the most flavor. flavor. The ideal way, the technical way to cook a steak is in sous vide. You know what sous vide is? I have no idea. Okay. Sous vide is when you take a steak and you put it in a plastic bag, you take out all the air, and then yeah. you put it in a bath of water. That bath of water has something called an immersion circulator. It's basically a heater, like a fish tank heater. Oh. It keeps the temperature of the water at a constant temperature. So what you do is you just run, let it run for like six hours. Ah. So you say, well, I want the inter internal temperature of my steak to be 160 degrees, 155 uh -huh. degrees, whatever right. it is. But since the water is the temperature of your end result, it never gets hotter or cooked more than the temperature of your water. Ah. So the steak is cooked to perfection from top Science. through to bottom. Science! <laughs> That's, we could do the Devo song, yeah. She Blinded yeah. Me With Science. She Blinded Me With, with science. science. Then what you do, once your steak is done, it's all red, just like that, but it's cooked to perfection. Then you take your thing. Did and you, you just pull out your blowtorch? You torch it. <laughs> you have a serious blowtorch in your kitchen. I do. So that way you get the browning and caramel and, and, and Maillard reaction that you want. That nice brown crispy crust yeah. and cook to perfection through and through. I would never do that in front of guests because it's just way too geeky. Um, <laughs> but it's, I don't think it's geeky at all. I it's think delicious. It's <laughs> but we're doing this in grandma's cast iron skillet and we're smoking up the house. Okay, so you flipped the steak. I did. And um, that was like, I'm going to say what, like five minutes on that yeah, side? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And it's a pretty thick steak. I'm going to say it's an inch and a half. Yeah, in that neighborhood. So the steak is resting now. Let the What's steak the rest science with... of having a steak rest? It lets the protein, so proteins start to constrict when they cook, which wrings out moisture. So 
you were just to slice it now, all the moisture would just flood out. All the moisture in the fibers, uh -huh. between the fibers would just flood out. You let it rest, they start to relax a little bit, and they bring back in some of that moisture. That makes sense to me. You don't want to cut a steak when it's still on, okay. the, on the hot side. Okay. So we'll let it cool down a few minutes. This is going to be kind of that, probably a little bit more on the medium side in your honor uh, than on the medium rare, but it'll be, it will certainly not be well done. What made you want to start your own salt shop? And why chocolate? And why... Why bitters? I mean, what's the combination there that's like the magic thing for you? I mean, I, I never did want to start my own salt shop. So and what happened? So, no, I, I, I didn't have any interest in that. Um, but at the time, my ex-wife wanted to open a flower store. Mm -hmm. And I s said I would help if I could just get rid of my salt collection by putting it in the store. You had a salt collection? Yeah, I've been collecting them for about 25 years prior to that, just due to my steak moment. Mm -hmm. And so I put them in the store. And I found that there was there were stories to be told mm -hmm. and that it was fun to tell these stories. And people were saying, my God, this is really fun to learn about. And then what was really interesting to me is because I'm not a culinarian. I'm not trained as a chef. I'm not trained as a restaurateur. I'm not any of that stuff. I've just traveled and eaten and I like cooking. And won awards for your cookbooks. But, you know, well, it's all, all good. Yeah. Prior to all that. And but what I did find was that. As is often the case, people did not examine this ingredient properly. They did not give it the proper respect. And when mm -hmm. you looked at the ingredient as its own thing, not as a word, right. as an ingredient that has quality and character and soul and a history, it asks you to do certain things. Mm -hmm. It asks you to treat it a certain way. And so I started to apply salting as a technique much more seriously. And what that really led to was a deeper level of respect and appreciation for the ingredient and for cooking and the process of cooking. It was slow the heck down, look at what's in front of you, honor it, love it, and put something together wonderful with it. I just preached that over and over and over again in the form of salt, and that kind of led to a business. Then how did the bitters and the chocolate come in? Well, we have about 400 chocolate bars in the store, and when we first opened up, um, I was looking for something that was as elemental as salt. It had to match the aesthetic. We had flowers and salt. It's a pretty weird combination. Yeah. The flowers are obviously about as elemental as they get. It's, it's, it's the raw, pure, full beauty of nature in your household. So you've got flowers and then you've got salt, which is the elemental primal ingredient that drives flavor and is universal and is essential in cooking. Yeah. So what are you going to match with that? Well, there's two things that I could think of. One of them was the cocktail. Liquid culture is every bit as important as food culture. Right. Frankly, in a lot of ways, it's more important in modern American society. So many of our lore, so much of our romance, so much of the ways that we identify with a, a life well lived is through liquid culture. But I was like, we're going to do bitters, we'll do vermouth, we'll do yeah. whatever else we can carry. Right. Uh, that, that speaks to that. And then to balance that off, the other thing that I think of as, as storied and profound and complex, but with its own history, is chocolate. And the reason why chocolate grabbed me beyond that is I've been a wine lover my whole life. Mm -hmm. But as my understanding of wine grew, my wallet did not grow at the same ratio. So chocolate bars gave me that. There's actually more flavor compounds in chocolate than in wine. Good chocolate bars are mind-blowingly delicious and complex and just beg of you to just take a minute and enjoy it. And on top of that, what I love is I love anything that has that is profoundly misunderstood. So like salt, it's profoundly misunderstood. I think cocktails are not understood hardly at all. And uh, and chocolate's misunderstood. We all grew up with chocolate thinking it's candy. Chocolate's not candy. It's a natural whole food. It's something that's made with 
Beans. Oh my God, did you just pull out an entire drawer of chocolate? This is part of our drawer of chocolate. We have chocolate cullings at our house. We have people over and we just break out 50 chocolate bars and make everybody eat them all. And, how we and have... then you never sleep. No, you know, chocolate's not so bad for sleep. Really? Um, not, not for me. I, I, one of the things that's a little bit confusing is, you know, you get this little bit of a buzz from chocolate. Most of that buzz is from theobromine, which is an endorphin booster. It's a happiness, sex hormone, all that good stuff. Oh, that's why booster. I like chocolate. It's <laughs> good. Um, so that's where it comes from. And the caffeine is actually a smaller component. So now we've plated up uh, the steak. And what's, uh, you're telling me that there's a trick uh, yeah, so to serving the steak. This is the coarse gray sea salt that I first discovered salt with. So salt from the uh, west coast of France from a small area called uh, Noirmoutier. So these are really coarse, chunky crystals, almost overpowering, but on a steak, they're fantastic. So I'll just kind of scatter it. You can have less or more based on your, your appetite for salt. Okay. And then we'll throw a little salad on the plate with some croutons. This looks so good. Here it comes together, huh? So we're sitting down on uh, at this beautiful table and we have the steak that's all ready to go and the Caesar salad on the plate. And we're ready to dig in. Mmm. Wow. Mmm. You're totally right. That flavor of the salt comes out. Mm -hmm. Where's the salt from again? The first salt was from Guatemala. The second salt was from France. Mmm. That wow. coarse, chunky, crazy salt's from France. It really brings out the flavor of the meat. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's tender. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, a beautiful kind of a, just a, a light pink on the inside. Mm -hmm. And then the salad, it's just got this bright... Uh, lemony flavor, and I'm gonna get one of these croutons that you soaked in the dressing. Mm. That's like dessert while you're having dinner. Oh, if I could share this with the audience, I wouldn't. Right, <laughs> I'm with you. I have to say I'm gonna list um, the Meadow and the Bitterman Salt Company and your blog and all those beautiful things on the SoundCloud posting of this episode. Oh, fantastic. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show and I for feeding me here. and for this great conversation. This You're welcome been... to come and hang out in our kitchen anytime. Well, I'm going to, I'm we totally going to. We don't really gonna... lock our front door. It's a little secret. So <laughs> just come on in. So the address is, yeah. no, I'm kidding. Thank you, Mark, so much for being a guest on the show and for cooking this amazing food. Um, this has been a really great, really great day. Thank you so much. It was awesome to be here in my own house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, jazz singer Marty Mendenhall. Are you excited about the next show? So am I. Become a patron of this podcast and get on the early release list for just $1 every month. Find out about this and other perks by joining the fun at patreon.com forward slash Marty Mendenhall. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time on Marty's Music Kitchen.